This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for October 21st, 2019. In this podcast, I talk to a retired university professor in economics and history about how today's students are being sold short. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. Students entering universities aren't very knowledgeable about the university experience. They've had no experience with them. In fairness Uh, fairness to the students, if they were knowledgeable, they wouldn't need to go to university. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, but, But there's rather poor information out there. That's coming up in a few minutes. But first, I want to thank all my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate you guys. Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. There was an interesting little aside in an episode of South Park a few years back, but if you live in the UK, you might not have caught it because that episode of South Park, the cartoon with eight-year-old Colorado boys who seem to know too much and too little about life, was never shown in the UK. The episode had a poorly drawn caricature of the actor Tom Cruise, who improbably shows up at the house of one of the boys, gets offended hides in the boy's wardrobe, and won't come out. Dude, this is my room! Go away, I said! Dad! Tom Cruise won't come out of the closet! What? Tom Cruise locked himself in my closet and he won't come out! Mr. Cruise? Mr. Cruise, come out of the closet! No! Come on, Mr. Cruise, this is ridiculous! I'm never coming out! Mr. Cruise, you can't just stay in the closet, all right? You need to come out. What's going on? Tom Cruise won't come out of the closet. What? Just leave me alone. Well, we can't leave you alone because you won't come out of the closet. You get the impression that the writers are trying to make a point. But don't make that point in England. American libel laws started out very similar to the ones in England, but they have diverged radically, and that change has become such a part of the culture in the US that it's hard for many people to grasp the difference. The main change came about from a case in the US called New York Times versus O'Sullivan. I don't want to go deep into the legality, but basically in 1974, the New York Times published a piece on policing civil rights demonstrations in Alabama, which contained some inaccuracies, and the Montgomery Police Commissioner, L.B. Sullivan, considered that constituted a libel against him he sued for libel. In the UK, that would be a slam dunk. You accuse someone of saying something you can't prove in court, ka-ching, they get a big payout, supposedly to compensate them for the loss of their good name. 
but the New York Times fought the case to the Supreme Court, arguing that the First Amendment means that they needed some latitude. If they publish millions of words a day, they're going to make some honest mistakes, and if that could put them out of business, that would effectively restrain their free expression. The court agreed, and changed the standard to take a libel case. Someone suing now doesn't just have to show that what was written was wrong, they have to show that the publisher was malicious or reckless in writing it. It's no good just to prove the facts support you. You have to prove that the journalist knew or should have known the truth, but wrote something false anyway. That sounds reasonable, but it puts a burden on the person taking the case to effectively prove what was going on in the mind of the journalist when they wrote it. And the only way to do that is to ask them, and it's pretty unlikely that they will voluntarily admit to malice or recklessness. In the UK, the old standard still applies. In fact, it has got much stricter. All along, if you could afford an expensive lawyer, and if you got wind that some journalist was going to publish a story about you that you didn't like, and if you could take them to court on time, you could get an injunction, an order not to publish. The only way to fight this was to prove every detail of the story in court, an almost impossible burden for most publications. But journalists developed a couple of strategies to fight this. One was to keep the stories top secret until publication, but that meant that you couldn't ask the subject for a comment and risked missing out some aspect of the story, increasing the risk of a libel case. Another was if you got injuncted not to report the story, but report the injunction. So the courts started issuing what are called super injunctions. That's a court order not only not to publish the story, but also not to publish the injunction, or report that the injunction exists, or report anything about the case whatsoever, and it applies to anyone who knows anything about it, so by definition no journalist can report it. There have been a few high-profile cases, including one taken by the chairman of the Conservative Party. In the 1980s, he won half a million pounds sterling, a gigantic fortune at the time, from a newspaper that reported that he had paid a prostitute for sex. Decades later, he was convicted of perjury. The story was entirely true. The newspaper was from a big media group, but other smaller publications have been totally put out of business by libel awards. But that was the 1980s, before the internet took hold. That brings me back to South Park and Tom Cruise. Now, anything that is published anywhere is, give or take the odd great firewall, published everywhere. Including England. That gives us what is called libel tourism. People with no connection at all to the UK, going to the UK to sue other people who have no connection to the UK for what they wrote in publications with no connection to the UK, sometimes not even in English. The path has been somewhat narrowed following a change in the law in 2014, but it's still there, and that's why the episode of South Park that I've taken that clip from 
has never been shown on British TV. South Park hit back with another episode where a whole host of stars lock themselves in the boys' wardrobe, and when they come out, you can hear this exchange. So you're not the prophet, huh? You made me look stupid. I'm going to sue you too. Well, fine. Go ahead and sue me. I will. I'll sue you in England. You are so sued, kid. Well, go on then. Sue me. We're going to. Okay, good. Do it. I'm not scared of you. Sue me. I'll sue you in England seems to be the ultimate threat that a celeb can make to a publisher because it's basically impossible to sue in the US. Whatever about the international impact, this affects British politics profoundly. If you want to know how profoundly, try to find out how many children the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has. British reporters, if they mention the topic at all, usually say that he has at least five children. His Wikipedia entry at the time of recording in the Quick Facts box says, children five or six. He has four children with his second wife, another with a woman he had an affair with while he was married to his second wife. That information came out in a court case. And there are persistent rumours of at least one more child with another woman, but nobody's publishing. The British libel laws are said to allow politicians to sleep soundly in other people's beds, but I'm much more concerned about them being used to prevent information vital to the public good being published. One oil company, called Trafigura, used a super injunction to prevent the publication of a report that they had been illegally dumping toxic waste on beaches in West Africa. We found out about that because of a concerted action, including a member of the British Parliament who managed to mention it in a speech under parliamentary privilege. For the rest, we don't know because we don't know. That's the problem with libel laws being too strict. But what about the almost, almost non-existent libel laws in the US? More next week. My point about the British laws is not so much about the scandals that people try to suppress but break through, not even about the stories that are successfully stymied by legal action, but about the much larger number of stories that never get that far because journalists are too afraid to write them or just don't even start on the research because they know that there is a good chance that they will never be able to publish. That is a cancer on public life. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Richard Vedder. He's an economist, a historian, an author, and a columnist. He is Professor Emeritus of Economics at Ohio University, and he's also a senior fellow at the Independent Institute, who have just published his latest book, which is called Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Richard, when you say restoring the promise, that sort of gives a hint that maybe higher education isn't up to what it should be at the moment. That's uh, correct. It isn't up to where it should be. Uh, Higher education in America is too expensive. Uh, I think there's widespread consensus about that. 
there's probably less consensus about a second thing, namely that students aren't really learning that much mm-hmm. in American universities. Now, there are obvious exceptions to that. There are many students who learn a great deal while in college, but uh, there are uh, is a large portion of those going to college that really, when they leave college, haven't learned much more, uh, don't have better critical uh, thinking skills, uh, mm-hmm. don't have better writing skills, uh, etc., than they did when they started. And basic knowledge, they don't have as much knowledge. And then thirdly, one last thing, is there's a jobs problem. Uh, there the expectations of students when they enter university is that they will graduate, and only 60% do, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, within six years. So that's a problem. But even if they do graduate, they expect to get good jobs in the technical, managerial, professional fields where college graduates have historically gone. A large percentage these days are not getting those kinds of jobs. Yeah, there's certainly a trend and it's well known of people perhaps with liberal arts degrees ending up uh, serving cappuccinos. But I want to leave that aside for a little bit. And I obviously you're proposing solutions for this and I have a very helpful bullet point list of solutions that you've suggested. But I'm wondering about the causes of this as well. And one is the huge increase in commercialization of US universities. That has caused part of the problem? Well, I guess you could put it that way. Uh, Certainly universities have, uh, uh, well, for one thing, uh, certainly more and more money passes through universities. The resources that universities expend in doing what they do Mm -hmm. has grown enormously over time. That goes to the high cost. And, of course, universities are seeking new resources all the time. And part of it is a problem related to that. Uh, For example, most importantly probably, is that the student loan programs, which were put in as a good faith effort to try to lower the cost of uh, the barriers to going to college for mm-hmm. students, that these programs have actually probably raised the costs of college dramatically as universities have, have scrambled to get more resources. I guess you'd call that the commercialization of, of colleges. Uh, as universities have have. Uh, uh, have raised their tuition fees dramatically to take advantage of the fact that the students will, one way or the other, borrow the money uh, to pay- make the payments. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the availability of cheap uh, student loans has increased the ability of universities to be aggressive in raising their fees and of course, that gives the universities more money, which they spend on a whole variety of things, uh, engaging in something which might be called a, an academic arms race mm-hmm. uh, with one another, trying to have fancier facilities and buildings and uh, giving uh, superstar professors great salaries and hiring lots of administrators and who, who are not really teaching but are uh, in the, part of the bureaucracy. So that's part of the problem. Um, you are, this, and your book is published by the Independent Institute, which I think it's fair to say is a right-leaning pro-market institute, and that's maybe come through in your economics as well. 
are you maybe a little bit embarrassed that the market doesn't seem to work so well in terms of higher education? And that might not be so surprising because people who are students who are coming into university at maybe 18 or 19 years old, they if they go into McDonald's and ask for a hamburger and told that, no, you don't want a hamburger, you want a milkshake and fries instead, they can go next door into Burger King and say, no, damn it, I want a hamburger. But they don't have that level of autonomy to say what's really good for them in a university. And they rely on an ethic of the university to guide them. The market doesn't really work so well there when the, when the customers, if you want to call students that when the customers aren't in a position to know what's best for them? Well, I would agree that markets, uh, there are imperfections in markets. And I do think there is uh, there are problems uh, in higher ed. I think the way I would prefer to put it most of the time is markets aren't allowed to work in higher ed uh, the way that they do elsewhere. I think they could work better than they do. Uh, uh, and there, although I will uh, I'll concede right away, and I don't concede, I think it's true. Uh, one point that you're hinting at is that students entering universities aren't very knowledgeable about the university experience. They've had no experience with them. In fairness, uh, in fairness to the students, if they were knowledgeable, they wouldn't need to go to university. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, and and but but there's rather poor information out there. I mean, students might think, oh, I want to go to Harvard, and they're not uh, at all. Uh, that's not even a real a real a realistic possibility. Uh, that's why Harvard gets twenty some applicants for every place that they fill. Uh, too many students think they can get in; they can't. And there are other students who uh, go to schools that are totally inappropriate for their educational background, their interests, uh, uh, their pocketbook, how much money they have to spend, and so forth. So there's a lot of uh, uh, if if it is market failure is market failure brought about by poor information mm-hmm. uh, in higher, higher ed. And that's the problem. That's why the college uh, rankings that are done by magazines uh, are so popular and so important to uh, student consumers. Because uh, how, how do we, how does a 16, 17, 18 year old uh, person have any idea what's the best school for them? How would they know so they have they want information and they want it to be simple and easy to understand. Uh, that's why magazines like U.S. News and Forbes uh, come out with these rankings, and uh, uh, the rankings are useful. Uh, they uh, they do can uh, provide some information, but they don't provide a full picture of uh, of what going to college is. And students often uh, make mistakes and they go to the wrong places. And two out of five uh, don't graduate in six years, and that is a, a waste of resources as well. It sure is. On one of your bullet points that you have for suggestions to improve the system. One that I just cheered when I read three words, ending grade inflation. And I couldn't agree with that more. I think that it's really pernicious. But isn't that really just the market working itself out? That market incentives on both sides create grade inflation. Students, it is entirely rational for students to put pressure on universities to give them better marks. 
And it's entirely rational of commercial organizations like universities, which is effectively what they are now, to please their customers by giving them straight A's when maybe they shouldn't, maybe that's not justified from an academic point of view. You say that it's market failure, that the market isn't being allowed to work, but how could the market solve that? Well, uh, first of all, uh, a large part of that problem came about, the problem really uh, became a big problem after the 1970s, I would say. Mm -hmm. By the way, I've been teaching I've been teaching since the 1960s, so I've been through it all. And when I started teaching, the C was probably the most common grade given in American universities. Mm -hmm. And maybe for seniors, advanced students, maybe the B was the most common grade. Relatively few students got A's. But starting in the late 60s and early 70s, we began to have student evaluations of professors. And so this is another angle. It's actually consistent with what you were saying, the student evaluations of professors uh, were, were given and the students learned what professors uh, were considered excellent and which ones were considered poor. And professors found out very quickly that they could improve their, their standing with their own students by giving high grades. So that was a contributing factor. Now, one way to stop that would, of course, one way to stop that would be uh, put an end to student evaluations. I'm not sure that's the you know the the optimal way to do it. Uh, another way to do it would be for universities to simply say uh, the standard grade at our school will be C, or if the total average grades uh, in any given academic department is above a B average or even a little lower than that, perhaps 2.8 on a four-point scale, mm-hmm. uh, the department's going to lose resources. We're going to take money away from the department. So it effectively, effectively impose a curve. Yeah, impose a curve, tax tax departments who insist on giving good grades, and you could even go further and uh, reward departments who give lower grades, not, you know, not, not give uh, more grades of C's and D's in an attempt what, to get... What, what non-insane university president is going to do that? Well, no one has done... There are some schools that are starting to do that because of the absurdity of everyone getting A's. Mm -hmm. And employers are starting to complain in some cases. You're giving us students, as you say, are great students. We don't find them so great. We think they're just average or mediocre. So there is, but there has been some pushback, but it hasn't been big enough yet. I I would agree generally with your comment. (laughs) Most university presidents wanting to survive find the easiest path is to just make everyone happy. The way you make the students happy is you give them high grades. You make the faculty happy by giving them parking places and, <laughs> and, low, te- and low teaching loads. You, get, you make the administrators happy by paying them enormous salaries and uh, having, giving them a lot of assistant administrators to help them do the job. So in a university, the, the thing to do if you're a president is to make everyone happy. And that costs a lot of money. And so that's one reason fees and so forth have gone up so much over time. I'm, I'm glad that you got around to that. And you mentioned that you started teaching in the 1960s, which is perhaps giving away your age just a little bit. But yeah. on a previous podcast a couple of months ago, we did a calculation that in the 1960s, and I think 1960 was the year, in order to pay the average university tuition, 
you would have to work for nine weeks during your summer break at minimum wage. To pay the average university tuition now, you would have to work at minimum wage for 93 weeks. So the relative cost, even adjusted for increasing wages, the relative cost of universities has gone through the roof. And I think that perhaps you're correct that part of that is a response to uh, federal and sometimes state initiatives where they make grants and loans available to students and where you have a larger amount of money chasing a fixed amount of resources, the result is inflation. But is that the only reason that's happening? Is it that perhaps the universities are gatekeepers on a very valuable or at least a previously very valuable piece of paper, a a degree, and they're trying to charge as much as the market will bear? No, I think there's a lot of truth to that too. I think both factors at work. Uh, it is true that the differential earnings between, say, a high school graduate and a college graduate grew dramatically in the last quarter of the last century, 20th century, mm-hmm. in, uh, up to about 2000, from, say, 1970 to 2000. Those differentials uh, grew as uh, the uh, as the economy was changing, and we were rewarding people who had spe- more skills, and uh, uh, we needed fewer people who were strong physically, and more people we needed more people who were strong mentally. I guess you might say, mm-hmm. uh, and and so the value of a college education rose for that reason. So quite independent of student loans and all of this sort of thing, there would have been an increased demand for higher education uh, uh, that was robust and considerable, and it happened. Now, in the last 10 years or 15 years, that has leveled off a good deal. And indeed, uh, the different, the earnings differential between high school and college graduates over the last tech decade has remained pretty constant and in some cases has even declined slightly. Uh, does the major the matter, last- do, it does, is that very different, for example, liberal arts majors compared to engineering majors or some other perhaps more technical courses? Well, well, the technical degrees, of course, the workers in the, getting the technical degrees are making vastly more than those getting uh, uh, with uh, art, uh, liberal arts, uh, humanities uh, type uh, studies in philosophy or history mm-hmm. uh, or the fine arts, uh, which are the lowest paying of all areas uh, within universities are the people who are majoring in drama and theater and uh and the people who uh, study English literature or things of that nature. Those differences are huge. They've always been there. They've gotten a little bit bigger in recent times. The uh, the so-called STEM disciplines have, have done generally better, although even there there's exception. Biology majors or botany, take botany, Botany majors are sort of a scientific area. Those mm-hmm. majors, do, they don't do all that much differently than do a history majors. It's striking uh, it's, it's striking there that the majors that you're singling out as not earning so well are the ones dominated by female students. Particularly within the sciences, botany and biology is the one no, where where yeah. uh, female students uh, are strongest. Yeah, I think you that's an interesting point and I I haven't done a 
an extensive examination of that point, but I suspect you're right uh, that the more male-intensive disciplines are the ones that have had the greatest uh, salaries, uh, pay the greatest salaries, and whether that's uh, gender discrimination or just uh, circumstance, uh, uh, just by, happened by chance, I'm not uh, one to, to say. I don't know, but I think that's an interesting point. The the cause of the the direction of causation is possibly difficult to work out, and I'm sure it would be very hotly contested. But it's probably beyond the scope of this conversation. I'm interested yes, in a, you know, I'm interested in a couple of other things that you say, and as you say, you are a professor emeritus. I'm guessing you're not doing too many freshman economics classes these days, but you seem to be quite hard on your former colleagues. You're saying you want to increase faculty teaching loans. You want to have three-year degrees and year-round instruction. What's the point of being a professor or a lecturer at a university if you have to show up to work every day? Yeah, I know. We're starting to, I'm proposing to ask professors to work now. One could, a cynic could say, you could say that now after you've, your career is near an end and you're now you're saying, uh, you know, pull up the ladder. Yeah, pull up the ladder. Time for my, uh, new, new generation colleagues to actually start working. I, I didn't. Actually, that's a little, maybe unfair to myself. I, by the way, I still teach, even though I'm emeritus, I'm still teaching. I'm not teaching full-time, I'll grant you, mm-hmm. uh, but I am teaching. Uh, but uh, the point I'm making there, let's say I, I teach at a mid-quality uh, state university, and uh, I have colleagues just like I did when I started teaching 54 years ago. And when I started teaching 54 years ago, I taught three classes, uh, on the semester system for three hours a week each class. Mm-hmm. That meant I was in the classroom nine hours a week. My younger colleagues today who are in the same department teaching the same type of students now teach two classes or six hours a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I enjoy teaching six hours a week more than teaching nine hours a week. I, you know, it's more fun. You do have a, a more free time for other things. And I do think a good faculty member, good professors should be doing research, should be trying to expand the, the frontiers of knowledge as well as just disseminate knowledge. So I, I agree with all of that. But my uh, my experience has been on cost-benefit grounds. Most of the extra research we get from those low teaching loads are, is, showing up in, is showing up in very obscure journals that almost no one reads, and that there's diminishing returns that set into research. How many papers do we need on William Shakespeare? Uh, uh, we need papers on William Shakespeare. He was perhaps the greatest writer who ever wrote in the English language. But over 1,000 papers a year, that's the current output of papers on Shakespeare. That's three a day. Couldn't we get by with one new paper a day on Shakespeare uh, and have those professors who are writing these Shakespeare papers do a little bit more teaching? Um, so I, I just think it's a question of how we allocate our time and are we getting a bang for the buck, as uh, the colloquial expression is. Uh, and I, 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 I really doubt it. Richard Vedder. Professor of Economics Emeritus at Ohio University, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for calling. Never miss a show. 
Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, thanks to all the patrons who have signed up so far on Patreon. I really appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you can go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find that link on my website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's October 28th, I'll be talking to Scott Faulkner, a senior Republican Party operative since the 1980s, about what the Republicans got wrong. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Okay, good. Do it. I'm not scared of you. Sue me.